because I just talked about dynamics of the liminal web. And David McCarricker is someone who I've collaborated with very closely in the last year. Um, and we've organized a course together and I've tried to embody, and I think Dave embodies this as well. I've tried to embody that this is an example of the way in which you can collaborate uh, in these liminal web circles between different organizations. And so bringing Dave on here to talk about underground theory and what he thinks about philosophy. So Dave, do you have a presentation or are you just going to freestyle it? I'm going to sort of do a presentation. Oh, you're on mute there, Dave. I would do a presentation, yeah. Okay, so uh, just put up your slides and then I'll press record. Perfect. Here we go. Cool. Oh, beautiful. Oh no, that's, wait, what is that? That's the- That's right your website. Oh, that's what you do see the website. Okay, I was I was seeing the wrong thing, and I thought you were all seeing the wrong thing as well. I just have to put it on a different screen. Okay, you can all see my website now. Good job. Well, what I wanted to do was create a document and then title it um, Dave's Talk for Cadell, and really for the. Okay, well, let me know. I'm going to press record when you're ready. Yeah, well, I'm ready right now. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to. I'm going to press record. Recording in progress. Wonderful. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for having me here, Cadell. It's an honor. And from the last bit of your presentation that I saw, it looks like there's going to be a lot of stuff here at this conference I look forward to going over as it's uh, made available. What I wanted to talk about today was going to be a lot more Hegelian as far as I understand Hegel coming out of having read The Phenomenology of Spirit and having read uh, Zizek's For They Know Not What They Do just very recently, actually. Uh, we did a course on that at the, at the website. But I, my focus was going to be on contradictions and teasing out specific contradictions inherent to the idea of the university. I'm trying a little experiment here, and this is going to get a little meta in the sense that I will be talking about the experiment while I actually do what I'm doing. I'm starting to think that we're so accustomed to thinking at the speed of light or having our senses stimulated at the speed of light, uh, where information's coming at us really fast, um, that we're so accustomed to that, um, but it only works in certain ways. And it doesn't necessarily work with PowerPoint slides. And um, various professors I've had conversations with about media theory um, and, and, and about what the blackboard or what the whiteboard actually does as opposed to the PowerPoint, it's making me begin to think like maybe, yeah, we're, we're overstimulated and thinking itself is a little bit more deliberate. Thinking itself doesn't go fast, real thinking doesn't go faster than the professor is able to write on the whiteboard or the blackboard. So, you know, that's kind of like, the idea is like, I'm not gonna put a lot of stuff in front of you. I'll just kind of be adding as we go. So the idea of the university is this book by Carl Jaspers, or Carl Jaspers, as a, we, we kind of say it both way because we don't really care about anglicizing things because 
uh, we're not going to discourage people from saying things wrong. And so there's really no right way from our standpoint. But the contradictions inherent to the idea of the university, which for him is a community of truth seekers coming from a plurality of perspectives, trying to figure out what's real and sharing their perspectives and trying to systematize and do so in like a rigorous way, right? It's for research, it's for education, um, both, always both. Like, because you're not really um, living the life of education if you're not also saying, am I able to teach this? Can I put this forward in a way that's something that other people can get something from? And so that's all essential to this idea of the university, which is all an inherent critique of the actually existing university. But one of the contradictions inherent to this idea is that it requires a state apparatus, at least Jaspers is pretty certain that it does, so as to defend from the otherwise insidious and incessant sort of inertia of trying to commercialize everything, right? Or of politics getting involved and making it so that only one perspective can be present. He was writing the idea of the university at the end of the um, World War II. So this is during the denazification period of the German university system. And one of the contradictions he's thinking through is that, yeah, so on the one hand, we need to have an apparatus that makes it so that people are able to devote their lives to the pursuit of truth. That apparatus has to have state backing to ward off the need to constantly commercialize everything, but also to guarantee the rights of the people involved so that they don't have to worry about reprisal because they said something that goes against the moment, you know, the political moment. So it's like you need the state to defend yourself from the totalitarian state or from any faction or party that's trying to say it all has to be this way, it all has to be that way, as the Nazis did and as Stalinism also did, just over the eastern border. The next sets of contradictions, though, and the, the, the ones that are most important is that for this institution to work, you got to have students teachers, professors, we could say, and administration. The, the skills for being a good administrator are not necessarily the skills for being a good teacher. And the skills for being a good student obviously should have nothing to do with administration. Teachers, insofar as they are worrying about administration, obviously, they're, they're, I mean, they're not teaching. They're not researching, right? So I should also put slash researchers, because it is easy to imagine someone who's really just doing teaching and someone who's really just doing researchers or researching, because obviously we see that today in the neoliberalized university that has commercialized everything and at the same time made it all super political, right? So not only has the state failed in its dual role of warding off political um, factions from monopolizing the discourse, it's also failed from uh, securing a space of leisure time for professors to focus on their teaching and their researching. And as a result, there has been a bifurcation of the profession where professors tend to be either a teacher or a researcher. 
And in some cases, they're trying to do both, and that's usually not very good. Is that fan too loud in the background? It's I think you're good. I'm, I'm good? Okay, thank you. I get paranoid about these background noises. All right. But the administration, in order to like run an administration, um, you're preoccupied with making sure that courses are listed ahead of time, they're marketed to other people, people are able to see those things, make sense of those things, enroll in those things, retake those things. Those things actually amount to something. You get some kind of credit that actually is supposed to say something about what you did. The administration has to navigate all of this, and it's very complicated. Um, but the general tendency of administration is bureaucracy and bureaucratic glut the Kafka-esque sort of situation that obviously always occurs. This runs counter to both the spirit and goal of the university as well as um, the research and teaching interests. And obviously, um, it burdens the students with something that is also not their real primary interest while there. Uh, if assuming that they're there for the idea of the university, which is to be a, a part, of, a participant in a plurality of truth seekers who are all trying to have a conversation about their respective fields and how their respective fields all contribute to this bigger idea of the whole, right? Which is the universal in the university. Well, if students are supposed to be focusing on that, then they're not supposed to be focusing on the kinds of quizzes and exams that actually don't verify understanding, but only really verify discipline and your ability to regurgitate information. I think that at this point, everyone's going, yeah, 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 we all know this stuff. Not only do we all know this stuff, but we also know that Philosophy Portal would not be doing what it's doing if it wasn't for the current deadlock in the academic situation. Obviously, there are nice little uh, pockets of of, of discourse, research, teaching, and philosophy um, here and there in niche corners of the world like University of New Mexico, where they actually have a lot of cutting-edge uh, philosophers and theorists. But they're rare, and they're not com you know, they're rare and they're not common. I'm being redundant. I guess what I'll say about that for now as a way of transferring into what I want to talk about instead of just focusing on these contradictions themselves is to say, first of all, Underground Theory, or Theory Underground is publishing a book called Underground Theory, and Cadell Last, organizer here, has contributed a wonderful piece about his disenchantment with going higher and higher in his education, in his higher education, um, and, and, and realizing that where he thought he was going to be getting closer to truth, he was actually getting further from any sort of real rigor and any real sort of uh, robust conversation um, about the things that he felt matter, right? Which I think the previous lecture his shows you all kind of what he thinks matters, and I think we have to think seriously about these things. And even if we think that, that, that these matters that Cadell's focusing on aren't the fundamental ones, I'm, I'm just assuming that, let's just imagine that you have, well, yeah, I think that there's more fundamental issues. If you think that, then you have to think about why that's true. 
and you actually have to prepare yourself to respond to Cadell. This is not something I'm in the, currently in the process of doing, but it's something that's preempting the real question of today's lecture. The real question is, what's the difference between a scene and an intellectual milieu? I can't even spell this word, but ah, there we go, I did it. What's the difference between a scene and an intellectual milieu? When we think of underground scenes, we think of rap, we think of punk, hardcore punk, we think of more recent spin-offs of hardcore that have led to all kinds of stuff from metalcore to sort of rap, drill, moshcore stuff that we have with all these face tattoo rappers that are usually like these Latino or white trash dudes who made it big on SoundCloud. And they usually combine a little Lil Wayne with a little bit of Drake and a little bit of Lil Jon, which are all different things, with basically the sort of like hardcore, like throwdown, mosh, like guitar, chuggy guitars, breakdowns kind of music. The kind of music that allows people to really unleash their Dionysian passions in a way that Nietzsche probably would not have actually appreciated because he really liked Wagner, you know. But maybe if he was born in this time and place, he would have liked it. That's what we think of when we think of an underground scene. There's other kinds of underground scenes, but I'm going to kind of focus on these ones. I mean, like blues and jazz were underground scenes. Um, most, I mean, most things come from underground scenes. They usually start with an underground scene uh, where the artists are responding to a situation. So I'm going to go ahead and say scenes come out of artists responding to the situation. The situation broadly conceived is the status quo. Artists are generally disenchanted with the status quo, not because they're just rebels for the sake of being rebels, but because the status quo, in a time of constant change, our fantasy of the status quo is usually not keeping up with the actual changed conditions. So for instance, um, punk comes out of a moment when rock had made it so big that being someone who was super privileged, probably had, you know, access to quality, you know, lessons and and lots of leisure time for for practice, um, were all like the preconditions for making it big as a rock star. Yeah, but another one of the preconditions was a whole generation of radical hippies who sold out. And now that they are doing their long march through the institutions, they're no longer really radical, but they consume the signifiers of rock as a way of feeling like, oh yeah, well we're still, we're still kind of against the man, bro. And punks were like, no, we hate this. We hate this so much and this whole fixation on it having to be grandiose and epic and overproduced kind of to perfection. They spat in the face of all of that and said, look, we don't even know how to play music, but we don't even care because it's not about what's going on up there or on the radio or on the television. It's, it's not about like it, the revolution won't be televised, right? They, they've taken a lesson from what happened in the previous, uh, we'll, we'll call it a generation, which is suspect. But yeah, well, they're, they're, they're calling themselves counter to that. Right? Their culture is counter to this, this mainstream situation that has lost touch with 
the actual realities on the ground, which at the time was the proliferation of neoliberalism, really starting with Ronald Reagan and um, Thatcher. So what made this a scene, I'm saying, is that these artists were responding to something historically situated, like in the moment, that the current broader mainstream culture was incapable of of really dealing with. It's old models of thinking about reform, revolution, um, the status quo, the man. These were like, these were, these just were not sufficient and we'd all just, and we, uh, the, the hardcore movement that was arising in response to it was seeing something that, yeah, was congratulating itself as radical, but actually just serving as a function to help white collar um, ex-hippies keep clocking in working for the deep state, you know, as they developed the means for mass surveillance, which was the internet, right? So punks respond to that. Now, I'm not here to celebrate punk as like some great thing. I'm not a punk in any way, shape, or form, or at least, at least in form. Someone could say that there's something about the essence of it maybe that I participate in. There's ways of talking about it, but I would just rather say, I'm not one. I don't belong to a punk scene. I come out of something that was impossible without that movement, um, which is the more uh, like 2004 through 2012 hardcore scene, which is more of a metal to punk like mashup thing called metalcore, usually by outsiders. Now, I mean, I say it's called that by outsiders, but it's it's just hardcore. hardcore. Hardcore doesn't necessarily mean a sound. It's more of a spirit. But of course, the kids in the scene call it the hardcore scene. Now, the reason that Theory Underground took on this name, Theory Underground, was kind of from a realization and conversation that I had been having with Michael Downs of the Dangerous Maybe blog about it's like there's an emerging scene. In the same way that a music scene emerges, there's also like this scene emerging for theory and philosophy. And I always say theory and philosophy because someone like Slavoj Žižek will use these two terms interchangeably, um, but they're not necessarily interchangeable depending on who we're talking to, right? Um, I'm using theory, when, we, when I say theory underground, in the broadest sense. Basically, continental philosophy, but also philosophy. It includes philosophy because philosophy is the condition of possibility for theory, understood as continental philosophy and critical theory. Or critique of political economy, media critique, media theory, post-colonial critique, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these forms of critique that come out of this thing that we're calling theory. And thankfully, there is this emergence of people online educating others about this topic. And it's making it a lot easier for people to get into it. But something happened in every music scene in the last 100 years that is also already happening online. And that is... I'm going to just call it capture as a shorthand for now. Capture. So we just talked about how rock and roll got captured 
Um, obviously, Punk got captured. It was on MTV. You had Henry Rollins had his own show on MTV. Henry Rollins from Black Flag, who spent his whole life saying, build your own institutions, made himself a nice, comfortable uh, place to be pseudo-radical on MTV, right? He sold out in the eyes of a lot of the more purist types. But I would say, in a sort of sense, this, this idea that he sold out or that... Um, you know, punk went from being truly radical to not really being radical is itself something that needs to be critiqued. Being rebellious is not really a challenge to the system when the system will sell you the shirt to be rebellious. When the going and moshing it or, or slam dancing at shows for a decade um, is ultimately just a way of dealing with your childhood rage about your privilege and, and being a suburbanite when uh, the other side of that decade, you're going to do the same thing that your parents did. You're ultimately going to have to raise a family, right? This is radical disavowal of what Cadell is calling pronatalism, right? This radical disavowal of it with both the hippies and the, and the punk scene um, leads to a kind of burnout against the reality principle itself, which is that at a deeper level, we ultimately want that. We ultimately want to have a family. Um, I'll speak for myself. Like I was anti-family, anti-monogamy, all kinds of things for a long time. And I was just like, oh, it's socially constructed, bullshit, tradition, whatever. But eventually I got to the point where it's like, yeah, but I can't love other people's kids the way I want to be able to show up and be there for a child. Yeah, I want to be able to be there for a child. And the fact is, is I just can't do that for other people's kids the same way. And part of the reason, you know, we have this idea, well, we need to have an expanded notion of the family. We need to have an expanded notion of community. And it's like, cool, I was trying to do that. But ultimately, everybody's got their own kids and they don't want you trying to raise their kids. And, you know, like, get your own. It's like, okay, that's true. I really do just need to get my own, right? Uh, that, that's the kind of burnout that hippies ultimately faced. It's the kind of burnout that punks ultimately faced. It's, it's not just like, I don't know if, you've, if anybody's ever seen SLC Punk. It's a sort of cult classic film, but it's about a couple of punks, and then eventually they grow up, and it ends with him wearing a suit, and, and it's got his whole rationalization process for why he ends up there, right? And he's going to change the system from within, you know, just like the last generation tried to. But this is art, and art doesn't necessarily have to be political. I know that's kind of like a new left assumption. Or it's, I mean, it goes back before that. Lenin thought the same thing. But I think the criteria for what is successful or authentic in a music scene might not be the same criteria that we should be thinking about um, in a theory scene. And so figuring out, like, what is underground theory? Now, there's a big difference between underground theory and theory underground. The first is capitalized, and underground theory is not capitalized. Underground theory is something that everybody can partake in, insofar as they're doing underground theory. And uh, theory underground is an institution solo person college, I don't know, social media app, whatever it is that I'm doing. 
it's a media experiment in education. Um, but it's trying to be a hub for underground theory. It's trying to cultivate and lead the way for people who are getting into underground theory. And it's trying to equip them uh, by making this stuff more accessible, especially working class people who will be listening through their earbuds. Because not only is this an emerging scene, but a lot of the people participating in this scene are people who started listening to Joe Rogan while they were at work because they're just listening to podcasts. And then they got to hear some intellectuals on the show. And then they were like, oh, this is interesting. I should look into Nietzsche. Oh, this is interesting. I should look into Jung. Oh, this is interesting. I should look at et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden they go from listening to or uh, School of Life videos to getting into philosophy to uh, Jonas Cheka, a.k.a. Cuck philosophy. Um, uh, and then eventually they end up into some more rarefied stuff like uh, theory and philosophy. Right, like I don't know if any, if everyone's familiar with the channel Theory and Philosophy by by David. I forget his last name off the top of my head, but he does amazing work. And I say like it's kind of more niche. It's kind of more rigorous. It's meat and potatoes compared to something flashy like uh, like Plastic Pills or Todd Nichols. Right. So if they, if a lot of these are kind of like out of your uh, circumspective concern. You don't really have a. a you, you don't even know who any of these people are. Don't really worry about it. They're just, I'm, I'm kind of giving you uh, a, a version of my own org chart similar to the one that Cadell showed during his lecture. But this is more like the pipeline that I'm describing. I'm describing that there's stages before you get to people who are doing what I consider to be underground theory. And so there's a lot of problems that come with stipulating what is or is not the real deal, right? Like some kind of a claim to authenticity that can easily be problematized and deconstructed. But at the same time, it does help to have some kind of basic distinctions. And so what I wanted to start with, I know I'm just beginning. We're, we're getting to the beginning. I probably only have like five more minutes. But the thing I wanted to say is Cadell begins defining underground theory with a precondition. That is, you are doing what you love with people who you love. And then I felt kind of weird repeating that in the presence of people who I would not just look at and say, I love you. And so I slightly adapted it to say, doing what you love with people you love doing it with. That is the definitely the essence of all underground music. Underground music always looks at the mainstream and says, no. This is not capturing the spirit of our times. This is out of touch. It's not even using the new instruments that are available to us. There's some new potential here, and people feel disaffected and um, alienated, and we have, we have a message, we have a feeling, we have a mood, we have a genre, we have that sound that we're experimenting with. And why are we experimenting with it? Because we found people we love doing stuff with, and we're doing what we love. And I like this as a precondition for doing underground theory. But remember how I started by saying that if you disagreed with Cadell's lecture or any of the lectures or, sorry, presentations at this conference, if you disagree with anyone, it's not sufficient in this kind of a scene to just say you disagree or just give your opinion. I don't think it's sufficient. I think that 
what we're trying to do goes beyond a scene. It's metaphorically or analogously related to a scene, but tries to go beyond a scene and actually get what we feel like we were missing in academia, and that is a robust, dynamic, pluralistic, intellectual milieu. The word that I have in the title of this talk. So what is the difference between a scene and an intellectual milieu? I've been thinking a lot about this because I've been thinking a lot about Cadell's definition of, of, of underground theory as, I'm going to go ahead and just type out the definition right here, doing what we love with people who we love doing it with. That's my adapted version, but it's the same spirit, I suspect. That would be sufficient for a scene. But underground theory is hopefully not just a scene. Why? Because every scene that's ever happened fades away and doesn't leave a lasting impact. Its sound becomes something that gets put in a museum or a library or listened to as oldies for some people who are feeling nostalgic. You know, it's one of those things where you would have had to be there at the time. Right? No, no, it's not, it's not just the impermeability of it. Um, and, and arguably, impact is made. But more importantly, it's that scenes get captured by consumerism. And that consumerism today is mostly done through our phones as a way of curating our identities online that we find communal belonging through belonging through affinity, affinity groups. I just want to say, Dave, you got about 15 minutes, and you can use that time however you want. Thank you so much. That's actually perfect. I, was, I thought you were going to say 15 seconds, and I was like, oh, no, I'm screwed. But... Um, <laughs> affinity groups now if you just look at the definition of affinity group I'm pretty sure that it's just like people with shared interests which is obviously there's nothing wrong in the world with that what is an affinity group? An affinity group is a group of faculty and staff linked by a common purpose, ideology, or interest. Affinity groups play a vital role in ensuring an inclusive environment where all are va valued, inc included, and empowered to succeed. That sounds wonderful, and everyone should want to be in one, I'm sure. If you didn't want to be in one, maybe you just have had such bad experiences trying to be in them that you're kind of like, ugh, don't even talk to me about inclusion. I've been around people who try to do that, and what they're really doing is something completely different than what they say they're trying to do. But of course, the idea on paper sounds really good. Now, people who are linked together by a common interest, purpose, or ideology, that's important. Purpose, ideology, interest. But why is affinity group a slur for people who use it when they say, I don't want to be a part of an affinity group? Right? Is it because they just want to be lone wolves and do their own thing? Or is there something else that's genuinely off-putting? 
Now, obviously, if you're involved with a bunch of other people and you have a real purpose and there's going to be actual deliverables, then hell, what's the problem? Or if you believe that your ideology has a a grip on things and actually has something to offer, then of course, double down and pursue it. Now, theory is, for me, ideology critique, right? So of course, if, if theory is ideology critique, then what is a theory affinity group, right? Something we have to think about. But what we get from ideology critique, thanks to Slavoj Žižek, is that we don't just look at the explicit or the implicit message of a song or of a movement or of a message. We don't just look at the implicit, the message behind the message, no. We go to a third level, one that gets out of the imaginary, gets out of the symbolic, and gets into the real. That is jouissance and drive. How is our libidinal economy implicated in affinity groups today? And how do affinity groups that are supposedly transgressive participate in what Slavoj calls inherent transgression, which is to say, the kind of transgression that is inherent to the system itself, meaning that the system has co-opted this form of transgression. So yeah, you can go to the protest, you can get your selfie, you can hold the sign, you can all like make your little stunt, and then the people in the institution will say, look outside, see? That means that you should sign my bill or agree, uh, you know, vote for my bill. And then things carry on the way that they always do, right? Um, there's this weird sort of uh, be, uh, under the table handshake going on between radical activists and standard reformist um, professors and politicians in that the, these older politicians and uh, professors who see themselves as radicals who've infiltrated the institution see the, oh, that's just a, those students out there, they might be making 150-year-old slogans sound about as antiquated as, like, I don't know, if they were trying to, what, use Morse code to communicate. Like, it, it might be completely out of touch and completely hyperbolic, but, hey, you know, they're putting the pressure on the institution. They're holding the fire to their feet. You know, they're going to hold us accountable. They're going to really, you know, it's just, it's just this way of slapping themselves on the back for their activism that they did that they saw as a rite of passage. And they see those students outside as people who will get disillusioned or, you know, accept the reality principle and eventually join them in the professional managerial class, which is fine, which is fine. Inherent transgression, affinity groups, none of this is new. Um, But what we have to think about today is the new media situation because any genuine art movement comes from a serious engagement with the new media. And generally, artists are the ones who see how to put those media to use for expressing the human spirit in a new way before anyone else does. And in a sort of way, we need artists because they're mediators between the future we're moving into and the present that we are in that we do not understand because we're using new media that function to change us in fundamental ways. The problem is is that the media situation is so much more complicated, I wonder if artists can even feel it out very seriously in like a nuanced fashion. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that 
I don't want to just be a scene kid. In the underground scene, in the hardcore scene, I was just a scene kid. I was not in a band. One of the first things most people ask you is like, are you in a band? You know, it's like, yeah, I, want, I wanted to be a front man. I kind of had the charisma. I love to, you know, be in the front, take the stage, whatever. But I just always, I've got a sort of vocal disability that made it impossible for me to participate in the way that I would have. And so, no, I'm not in a band. I'm just a scene kid. And people look down on the people who are just scene kids because they're really just consumers. They're not producers. The hardcore spirit is DIY. Do it yourself, right? Everybody at the show has their own band. Everyone gets it because they're all experimenting with the same kind of media. But I don't want to just be a scene kid in the world of underground theory. And I don't want to just be a YouTuber. I don't want to just be a Twitch streamer. I don't want to just be an Instagrammer, right? Because if the main function of consumerism is to capture whatever tries to get out of this mainstream, whatever tries to articulate things anew, then that means that these affinity groups aren't really people united by a common purpose so much as the feeling of belonging to a purpose, which at the level of drive analysis tells us they're usually forming an in-group in opposition to an out-group. They usually form their affinity group identity on the basis of who they hate or love to hate. Right? Um, and then that gets sold back to us as identities. So basically, if Theory Underground, Philosophy Portal, all of these other organizations on the liminal web that Cadell is talking about are to be a part of a robust intellectual milieu as opposed to just a scene where people are consuming their identities and experimenting with new media, then what? are the necessary and sufficient conditions of an intellectual milieu in the first place? I take that to be the most important question, is what are the necessary and sufficient conditions of an, of an intellectual milieu? Doing what we love with people who we love might be a precondition to those necessary conditions, but then thinking through the actual conditions themselves, or like the I, one thing I've come to is thinking it actually can't just be doing what we love with the people who we love doing it with because if we fundamentally disagree with somebody and they are a part of our intellectual milieu and then we just break rank with them and never talk to them again because we consider them to be an outsider, they're not really a part of our affinity group, then we're not even really participating in the scene in a robust way, but we're definitely not participating in an intellectual milieu because an intellectual milieu, if it has anything to do with this idea of the university, necessarily requires working through contradictions, contradictions that arise between a plurality of perspectives. So I think we can't just do things with people we love doing them with if those people are able to clarify their thoughts and put a lot of effort into making their position a thoroughgoing perspective that you are able to make sense of and engage with in a meaningful way, then the point is, is don't just disagree, but stew on it. Go back to that person's books 
essays, articles, read through them, reflect on them more, keep working through it, have real conversations to break yourself out of your imaginary relation with that other, and actually try to have, not debate, not discussion, not this bullshit liberal, oh, let's everyone have their voices be heard. No, we want to understand one another. Fundamentally, we should be trying to, at least. If we want to be able to foster the conditions for something that would outlast a mere scene, but become an actual intellectual milieu from which we would see genuine movements emerge. Because I take, to be, I take an intellectual milieu to be the precondition for any genuine movement. No transcendentalism, Marxism, German idealism, British empiricism, pragmatism, etc., without people who know each other, who don't just consume one another's content, but also think with, respond in a rigorous way, and keep that conversation going longer term than anything we're used to in a world that's trying to satisfy our every appetite at the speed of light. So part of what I think an intellectual milieu in an underground scene, in a, in a, in a world as interconnected as ours is currently, requires is creating spaces where we slow time down creating spaces where we direct our attention and our focus towards specific topics that get us all on board with certain reference points. Because if it's just, oh, I like these books and these are my opinions. Oh, and you like those books and those are your opinions. And oh, we agree on this and that and the other thing. That's an affinity group. And there's nothing wrong with an affinity group. But it's not going to be the condition for a rich, robust, intellectual milieu. And if we don't have that, I don't think that any genuine movement that has any kind of a grasp on reality, much less potential for positive change, will ever be possible. Thank you. And so what I want to kind of... Yes, uh, Dave. Dave, you're awesome. Okay, so look, we have, we have a... We have, um, I say let's 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 try and open up the space for, for questions beyond the normal allotted time. Um, I hope hope there's a there's a bunch of people here. I hope who uh, have have uh, questions for Dave. Um, do you want to sh- um, stop or uh, remove your screen so we can get a a group view? Absolutely. Let me. I'm, I've got a couple things to do here. Um, first, stop sharing. Second, get my Bluetooth headphones to work so you all don't hear yourselves echoed, and I don't have to mute every time you talk. Um, and while I get that set up, which is just about there, I would just say, everyone, I, what I, one thing I'm very curious to hear from everybody is, does anyone disagree with me in any fundamental way on your ideas about scenes, intellectual milieus, movements, um, the conditions for such things? Uh, and one of the things I'm really interested in is um, any sort of necessary requirement. I have a whole list of necessary uh, conditions I consider to be necessary for such things to even exist. And um, I didn't share them with you, and I'm not going to. Um, And so if you end up sharing one with me that I already have, um, great. But if you share one with me that I don't already have, I'll make sure to give you credit if I end up using it in the paper that I'm going to write. So let's go. All right, let's start with Joel and then we'll go to Max. Yeah, I'm just curious if you how much you think this oppositional logic is necessary for human social organization. Like, 
I think Adele mentioned it in his talk and um, like, you know, obviously punks is a very countercultural movement by definition, you know, does philosophy and the larger social movements, they necessarily have to have a strong oppositional element to them. That's one of those kinds of questions that's worth thinking about for a couple of years before I write a real response. And that if I if I did take a couple of years to give you a real response, Jill, and then you 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 had been thinking about it the whole time and you got your response out there, then I think these might be some of the conditions for an intellectual milieu. But if I just give you my opinion off the top of my head, we're just in a scene right now and this is just consumerism, but I'll do it anyway. And so what I would say is, um, that that oppositionality in the broadest sense is not necessary um, for human groups, but I do think there are fundamental contradictions because we all exist on this planet, um, and so there's fundamental contradictions between us in a million different ways. Uh, well, maybe not a million different ways. That's the thing about fundamental. There's a difference between a fundamental contradiction and just some kind of an opposition. So th I think that what happens with uh, consumeristic affinity groups, especially with the uh, duopolistic left versus right, simplistic culture war bullshit that we see today, um, these are not genuine oppositions. They're, they're masquerading as fundamental contradictions when in fact they're pretty surface level oppositions. But in order to be in a human group, there has to be some kind of a sense of the contradictions and oppositions in play. And in order for any rich, robust intellectual milieu to really take place, we have to try to get over our superficial oppositions and differences and instead really hone in on the fundamental ones, not so we can just have a beef, have a war, have a street fight, whatever, but no, it's so that we can actually figure out what's real because, and this is dialectics, you can't understand something if you don't work through the contradictions and tarry with the negative. So is punk superficial or fundamental? I think that the spirit of it gets to something that's real and fundamental, but as an aesthetic and as a genre, it gets really superficial and facile. And I think most, I, I know plenty of punks who would agree with me on that, so. All right, can we go to Max? So would you, the scene at the moment, what do you see as the next steps to make it more um, sophisticated? So that's why I had the, my website up. <laughs> I was gonna. I was gonna say. So the reason I have this feature is because I think this feature counters this tendency of the attention economy that fundamentally undermines the conditions of possibility for having an intellectual milieu. And the reason it has this feature is it also counters this other tendency that also fundamentally undermines the conditions of possibility for having an intellectual milieu. And I, so, what those key features are, if I were to essentialize it down to a single sentence, is. Theory Underground is a course, a lecture course gated social media app and publishing house. Except that lecture course gated and social media all kind of miss the point that we're, it's a kind of social media that is in a long-term conversation around the things that we're publishing and the media projects that we're doing. 
and that it's gated in the sense that we don't want to be wasting our time having conversations with people who haven't like spent some time trying to share a basic orientation with at least a certain set of reference points, which is the very idea of a canon. The idea of a canon is not so that we all agree, but so that we have some basic reference points so that we can see how we all interpret things and have those shared references so that we can at least ascertain that or or sort of qualify how other people are interpreting these things. So we're not just taking it all on faith at the level of opinion, right? Yeah, it's very interesting. It reminds me of going on. He was in, in his book, The Reign of Quantity, but with this turn, you're, like him, arguing for a reign of quality. Well, if you ever want to write a paper about that, I know it could get published. <laughs> I, know, I know a place where it could get published. Um, Guanon, if I'm not mistaken, is like this... I've not actually read any of his main works. I, when I was originally looking into him, I saw that he had a book about publishing, because I, I think he was an underground publisher. And... Uh, yeah, very underground. Yeah, his all I've read from him was his piece about publishing and about how he conceptualizes publishing. And I think that in a sort of sense, it's one of the it might be one of those necessary conditions because the idea is like the publisher has to have a picture of the whole. All of these book covers and the the subject matters that they deal with and all of this all relates, right? And so the same should be true with a journal. If someone's publishing a journal, they should be. Like, how do we get all these people to talk to each other and not past one another? And how do we actually, all through reading one another, start to approximate the subject matter or the, the issues at stake, which whatever they might be? Like, how do we hone in on that? That should be fundamental. And of course, there's a sort of journal publishing industry. You can actually pay to publish and you can also, uh, there's just a lot of these journals where it's like you get published it's like there's no real sense that you've done more than kind of survey how people talk so that you can talk how people talk in that journal right which completely misses that thing that I think Gwinnon was actually trying to counter as well all right we have time for for one more question Matthew um Thanks, Dave. I, uh, I really appreciated your talk, and I love the distinction between the scene uh, as an affinity group and an intellectual milieu. I think that what I'm one thing that I didn't hear in what you were talking about, and I think is probably essential to building like a thinking community that is an intellectual milieu and not a scene, is personal formation. Like there has, like you have to form the right type of subject to be able to participate in that community. And you said, you know. You're, you're thinking about that in the way that you gate the community, but like there's intellectual, there are virtues. And I think that the, like, that would be the word I would use. There are virtues that have to be developed in the subject to be able to effectively engage in that community. Like Cadell was talking about um, how the encounter with reality is painful. And so any sort of encounter where that conceptual mediation is taking place is going to have to be, um, it's going to require courage it's going to require hope. It's going to require all of these virtues. And so I'm wondering if you've been thinking about uh, on a greater level, kind of how, how can a thinking community also inculcate the virtues that are required for the subject to become an, um, an individual who can truly um, think well? 
and thinking well in community with others. Beautiful. Yeah, I love that. Um, can I share the screen? Uh, let's see. Yeah, Go for it, it. It will let me. Wonderful. So back to the website. So basically, Matthew, first of all, talk about pronatality, man. You're here and you've got a kid. That's amazing. So congrats on being a father, I'm assuming, unless you stole that baby from someone else, in which case we're going to call the cops. But... Um, <laughs> he didn't come out of me, so sometimes it feels like he's not mine, but... Uh. <laughs> so intellectual virtues is a really important question, and I think that you know a lot of people tend to think about virtue ethics as one thing over here, and then over here on the other side we've got deontology versus consequentialism. And I hate that way of teaching ethics because all ethics have their, their thing that they're getting at that is uh, obviously important. Um, and virtue ethics is about how to have a good life um, and, and become excellent at the level of the individual who has leisure time. And so the, one of the core insights, I think, from virtue ethics is that of bending the bow. Lenin uses this, actually. He says we, we must bend the bow. But like he get, he's getting that from Aristotle. If you have a bow, a piece of wood that is bent in a certain way... <clears throat> Yeah, and you want to bend it straight. You don't just bend it straight. You actually compensate and counter and bend it the opposite direction. You take it to where you're almost going to snap it, and then you stop, and then you secure it so that it stays that way for a long time. And then when you let go of it, because you've been countering the tendency, now you've got it nice and straight. And so when I talk about the fundamental or, or, or most pernicious uh, dynamics and tendencies of the attention economy on us that change us, how we think, make us distracted, make us consumers instead of producers. Even when we're producing, we're consuming and we don't even realize how much of what we're doing is sort of pure ideology in the Marxist sense. Not like anything meaningful, but just something that just allows the, the general game to keep playing uh, without actually getting to heart of anything. I'm talking about countering these tendencies and I do think virtue ethics is fundamental for countering those tendencies. So, um, so that's first, is just to kind of say there's something there that needs to be explored. There's, there's some rich, rich thought to be done there. But I just clicked on the publications tab. I went down to theorizing the underground, which is just my blog stuff that I'm doing right now. And the most recent main post on method that I've done was this, the three principles of study as a way of life. And so I'm just going to bring that up here. I've got a couple other pieces on method. I've got writer's block and the fuck it button. I've got, uh, if you ever feel writer's block, that's when you should come read this because a lot of people said that this post unlocked their writer's block and then they, they did a lot of really quality writing afterwards. Um, mastery versus students supposed to know. This is my defense of lectures. Um, it's against the tendency of the new left to say everything should be discussion groups and rhizomatic. I'm saying, no, we actually need lectures for ourselves. If you're not yourself preparing to l give lectures, are you really learning the, the, the subject matter? You should be, even if you're not actually going to give a lecture, you should always be playing the role. What would I say in a lecture about this topic? And we need models. We need other people to take on that role. So these are all about method. This one right here, critique theory and ideology. I'm trying to counter a tendency for people to treat theory like it's poetry or art. I'm trying to counter a tendency to treat theory as though it's just curating your ideology. 
and I'm trying to draw a division between theory and ideology that might be problematic, but I think is itself bending the bow, countering a tendency which is just to kind of simplistically relativize everything. But this piece, The Three Principles of Study as a Way of Life, is probably my best piece right now. And so I'll summarize this very long post with basically just saying the three principles are each a standard. I have the Bryan standard, the Burt standard, and the Mikey standard. And the reason that these are named after people is because I'm not, this isn't purely abstract. I have got actual role models in my life who have made me realize that I was doing things in a superficial way. That made me realize that I am not doing this stuff in a rigorous and, and a, a way that's actually going to change me or anyone else in any positive way. And so it basically boils down, the Brian standard boils down to thinking as opposed to playing out the scripts that echo through one's mind is based in a lifestyle committed to the practices of Reading, writing, and conversation, but in that order. And we should uh, just start to, uh, to to wind down now, Dave. Okay. So reading, writing, and conversation in that order means like uh, we, we usually skip to the conversation stage and kind of pretend that we did the reading and writing stage, right? And a lot of the writing that we do is this conversation stage. It's not the writing that you have to do to actually work out the actual thing that you were reading. And then basically the other two standards are, based, are, are ways of countering tendencies in the attention economy by raising ourselves to impossible tasks when it comes to um, how we write, how we read, right? And so, yeah, I definitely recommend checking that out. And then that's basically all I have for that. But thank you. That's a really good question. And it's one that I will definitely be thinking about a lot more and hopefully putting stuff out on in the near future. All right. Do you have uh, one final thing to share with us, Dave, before we, we move on? Anything you want to leave, leave us with? Um, I did not get to most of the things I wanted to talk about and ended up talking about what I thought to be more important. Um, I, have, I have like two essays I was going to try to unite into one for this piece, and now I basically have a third one. And so my, my, my task keeps getting more and more complicated, but I do think that that's kind of the situation that we're in. And so I look yeah. forward to thinking about this all more with you all over these next several months. And I think that Cadell's and Philosophy Portal's general approach is a real push against the, the, the tendencies, the negative ones, towards something positive. And that, that is like this longer range way of thinking about having conversations with one another. I think that as we all workshop our pieces and then publish and present these and everything it's like it's going to come together and so keep thinking about it you can reach out to me anytime and i hope to see you all in the near future as we keep thinking through these things together thanks recording stopped all right